I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations, real, honest, authentic conversations, the kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone who's interesting from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whomever I want. But independence comes with a lot of work and some insecurity. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. Thank you for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Bill Ottman, co-founder and CEO of Minds, a free and open source social network with crypto rewards. Okay, here we are. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts about all of this. Thanks for having me, Megan. So, I mean, you founded Minds, or you co-founded Minds, I believe in 2011. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it goes way back then. We didn't launch the app until 2015. So the first few years were very much just a little bit more low key, building building out the infrastructure and experimenting. But yeah, 2015 is when we launched. And what was your aim? You know, what 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 is it that you were and are trying to do with Minds? It's always been that I feel it's inevitable that there is going to emerge an open source, free speech, decentralized social network. And because all of the, the major social networks now are closed source, that means they don't share any of their code. So you can't see what's going on behind the scenes with the algorithms and whatnot. Um, you know, they're spying on everybody. Everything's backwards. So if you look at sort of the history of technology, open source sort of is eating more traditional institutions like Linux, you know, took over the operating system world and now it's a standard Firefox and, you know, Chromium are, are open source and have sort of become, you know, like brave for instance is an open source browser that's really taking over because it's more transparent to users. And it happened with Wikipedia, even though in Wikipedia is not perfect. It has plenty of editorial issues, but the point is that something that's totally sort of community oriented, like took over the market and and it's happening with Bitcoin. And so we just think that it's going to happen with social. Okay. And I mean, there's also, of course, the, the free speech angle, um, how does that sort of factor into what you were wanting to do with this platform? Yeah, that's another inevitability. It's sort of like the big tech, all of them basically have the same type of content policy, heavily restrictive, slight variations. No one really knows what the policy is, sort of what they decide day to day seems to constantly be changing. Um, they have certain words and types of content that they don't allow. And so I always thought that the more content that could be allowed, the more people that would be interested in it and the more popular it would become, um, you know, because most people want as much access to information as they can possibly get. That's what's great about the internet itself. Um, and cause if you have access to the most information, you can learn the most and there's going to be a bunch of garbage in there and a bunch of 
great stuff in there and you're going to have to do good research and learn how to sift through it. But, you know, the fact that the big companies are, are becoming these silos and like, it's very diluted. You don't know why you're seeing what you're seeing. You only have access to a certain, I mean, that is what North Korea and China do. So it's, it's odd to me that big tech, you know, they, they talk about caring about information access for the world, but do they? Yeah, it's totally odd to me in a number of different ways. Um, Partly because I don't understand how it would serve any of these companies to limit access to information. You know, like I can, speaking for myself, I hate using Facebook. I'm, I'm so, I find it so boring. You know, I use it for work essentially because I have to, but because of the algorithm, I'm essentially seeing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's not interesting to me because it's not new. It's not new information. It's not new people. Um, most of it is actually, you know, posts from people that I don't even know in my real life. And I don't really care to know what they have to think. But the, the algorithm has decided this is what I want to see. And no matter how I've tried to manipulate it through like liking different things, like I've tried to like teach the algorithm <laughs> that I want to see something different and it doesn't work. And to me, that's, you know, there I'm assuming that I'm not the only one who feels that way. It's so frustrating. I mean, and that's why we have decided that we will always stick to the chronological, pure algorithm in the main newsfeed. And that, you know, potentially people could build their own algorithms if they want to, if they want something that's more like trending or related to what you're interacting to. We're not like anti-algorithm. That's like being anti-math. That's just a weird thing. To, <laughs> you can't be anti-algorithm. But you can be anti or uh, you, you can be you can want control over what you're seeing. And, you know, when Facebook ch gradually changed their algorithm, like it used to be much more organic than it is now. Like 10 years ago, you could reach a lot of people and it was largely organic. So you would see most of the posts of people you follow. And it was good. You know, like we were we could even drive a ton of traffic to mines way back then. Um through Facebook. And when we saw the, it changing and, you know, we have pages with like a million followers over there. And, and when it was like, wait a second, only a hundred people are engaging with this. Like there's a million followers. How is this happening? This is, I, we just worked years to build this page up and now you're taking away our access to our own community. Like that was such a betrayal on their part to have everybody work so hard to build up these pages and then just take away the access. Like, are you joking? To me, that is false advertising. They, you know, they need to be penalized for doing that because it's really like changing the terms and maybe they have some right. It, but I, you know, in terms of, it's definitely seems like false advertising. I mean, they even sold likes to people so you could get more followers and then suddenly like that like doesn't matter because because their algorithm changed and yeah and there's no way to get back to chronological twitter has they default you into the algorithm mode but you can actually change it to see latest if you click this little like icon on the top of the feed so at least they allow that switch but yeah, I mean, it's like they think that they know what you want more than you, which they don't. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they don't. And it's, you know, 
I, I just, I find it really baffling because it must be, I, it must be working for them in, in some way or another because they're obviously their primary motive is profit and that's attached to users and keeping people on the platform. So is this working for some people and not others or what's happening here? That's probably true. I, I, I think there are, you know, they're looking at data. So they're saying, okay, we tweak it this way and we're seeing users get more addicted to the feed. And so I think more sophisticated users want more control and notice that, hey, wait a second, I'm not seeing those pages that I love. And that's annoying to me, like you, like you just said. But maybe less sophisticated users just accept it and, um, and, get, and get addicted. But I mean, you know, for instance, on YouTube, I do notice that like, some of the recommendations are extremely good. Um, in, in, so it's not, again, about being anti-good recommendations. It's about being able to get access to everything you want to get access to. And, and so Facebook doesn't even allow that. And that's just so frustrating. Um, so yeah, they, it does work. And they're looking at how addicted they can get you, but it also doesn't work in certain circumstances. So I, I'm, yeah, I'm not exactly, I'm, I'm not sure of the differentiation of when it works and when it doesn't. It seems like Facebook works less well than YouTube in my experience from looking at my main feed. But. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I think you're right, actually, because when I click, I just I actually just opened YouTube right now because I think YouTube does work pretty well in terms of figuring out what it is that I want to see. And Facebook has been failing at doing that for, I think, probably a few years now, at least. Um, and yeah, when I open up YouTube, it's often like, oh, OK, this is like a Joe Rogan clip that I would like to watch. <laughs> Or this is a like yoga video that I would want to see, or this is (laughs) some weird, I'm not sure if I should admit to what else is on my, my YouTube (laughs) algorithm. The sad reality of beautiful women today. I don't know what that's about, but (laughs) maybe as a subscriptions feed, so you can get to the raw chronological as well. So, but, but, but they, they push you away from that. And the problem with pushing you away from chronological is that it hurts it hurts a lot of people. It helps other people that they choose to surface, but that's where, you know, the unfair bias comes into play. They're sort of picking the winners and losers as opposed to people themselves picking the winners and losers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. And I think this has been a conversation that some of us have been having lately is like, you know, these, these platforms, including YouTube will decide that you can't access this information and they'll sort of, and they'll limit um, the, I guess the traction of certain videos and certain content that would otherwise be getting maybe like crazy clicks or crazy likes or crazy retweets. I mean, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang have been, have been talking about this, you know, they've been getting dinged on their channel for talking about things that I guess YouTube doesn't want them to talk about. Um, and, you know, and people have been complaining for probably a couple of years now about getting, you know, shadow banned and things like that. And I, I don't actually know exactly how shadow banning works or how you figure out if it's happened to you. But I feel as though, you know, I've been affected by by 
by that kind of thing as well. Um, but that's another thing that I find a bit baffling is because I, I, I understand based on listening to and, and reading, you know, about this kind of thing, like listening to, you know, people like you actually, and, and other people who really understand how social media works that, and you can, you know, you could probably just guess at this also that social media, these platforms benefit and profit from controversy and, you know, kind of toxic arguments because then things go viral and more people participate and more people stay on the platform or the app or whatever. Um, but then at the same time, they've become very invest- invested in banning controversial content. So, you know, that doesn't make sense to me either. I can't figure out how they benefit from banning things that would be controversial and therefore would get a lot of traction on their platforms. Great point. Yeah, it is sort of a paradox there because if controversy brings engagement, then, you know, it's the same thing with, uh, you know, banning a a major political figure on, on, on whatever side. It's like, well, wait a second. Clearly there are advertisers who want, or demonetizing them. It's like, we know there's advertisers who would want to advertise with them just because, you know, they're on the, the right, uh, you know, they're, they're a, a big, like Crowder, for instance, like getting demonetized. It's like, well, guess what? There's probably thousands and thousands of huge brands that would want to advertise on his channel. It's not. So when you say he's not advertiser friendly, like, what are you actually saying? I mean, I mean, that that's just not true. So it's, and that's where ideology does seem to be the reason that they're doing it. Um, you know, they benefited massively from allowing more content, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, YouTube 10 years ago, there was way more crazy stuff on there. Granted, it wasn't a first amendment based free speech policy like we have. So they were still banning tons of stuff, but it was much more open. And that is when they were going through their massive growth phase. So, so they, they benefited off of the, and same with Facebook and Twitter, they used to allow much more than they do now. Um, so they got that benefit and now they want to play politics and PR. That That's what my gut says. And, and, and they have, um, a lot of, of pressure from the media. You know, it's, yeah, like you say, like, it seems like a lot of their decisions are ideological. They're obviously political. Um, I was totally blown away that apparently we learned recently that, you know, Twitter has more power than the president of America has. Unbelievable. <laughs> It is unbelievable. I mean, and I just, I wonder who's, you know, who's kind of running the show here? Is this pressure from, pressure from activists, pressure from political parties, pressure from, I mean, the media? You know, I think that we notice it in all of our own social circles as well. I mean, look at, look at what is happening in everybody's family and everybody's friend group, you know, you notice there's uh, these, these political tribal battles that are, that are happening. And and we know that for instance, there was a bit, just big thing at Basecamp and Coinbase um, two kind of big tech companies. Basecamp's like a project management system uh, that just had, they decided to be an apolitical company and like, you know, 
I forget, like I, some major percentage of the, of the employees left the company because, you know, they were activists. And the reason Basecamp made that decision is because they were, you know, having employees like try to sort of bully them into different behavior. And the same thing happened at Coinbase. And they said, no, we're not going to um, play politics uh, as a company. And Twitter has clearly <laughs> not made that decision. And I think that we do see a political activist employees sort of dictating who's getting banned. And I, I have to imagine that the reason that they make certain bans are, are based on internal company conversations on, you know, what, what makes sense. It doesn't seem to be based on anything um, standardized. No, it doesn't at all. And I mean, like, I don't want to make this about me because, I mean, first of all, I've been talking about this for years now and it's not, you know, the most interesting thing to talk about. But obviously I was kicked off of Twitter. No, we're um, in the same camp. We probably talk, like, talking about social media censorship is like, <laughs> we talk about it a lot, but it's uh, it's okay. There's always fresh material. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and I obviously, I think it's a really big deal. Like, and I get actually really angry when people dismiss it when I talk about these things or when people act like I'm harping on it and they're like, oh, you know, it's just Facebook. It's just Twitter. And it's like, this is a really big deal. I mean, this is about, I mean, it's about freedom of speech. It's about access to information, but it's also about who has the power. Um, it's obviously about like our privacy and about data collection. Um, but to me, it's very scary that these companies have this much power. It's not just, oh, so you got kicked off of Twitter, like stop whining about it, which is a lot of, you know, a lot of people respond to me in that way. <laughs> It's so shocking that you, you got the perma ban, right? Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, it is so deeply terrifying um, that there's no path to reversing that. And, and, and they've sort of, you know, because they said it was permanent, it can, it can never be reversed. It's just that is, is unbelievable. And I d I'm imagining you saw when uh, Tim de debated Dorsey on Rogan. Mm -hmm. Did they bring up your case on the, yeah, the yeah, they did. And, yeah. and, and um, I never know how to say her name, but the. Uh, Vijay, Vijay. Uh, yeah. Another do I. Yeah. I just, I don't want to muck it up, but um, I, I mean, she was, they lied about why it was banned on Rogan. Um, and said that it was like, oh, well, she has this long history of harassing trans people, which is not true. You know, I don't even I honestly still don't really, truly understand why I was banned. I still don't know what rule I broke because they never told me. I mean, and this is what happens so often in these cases is they just ban you and then that's it. They're like, you're banned for hateful conduct um, but in my case, they never specified a rule that I broke. You know, they didn't say the best I can do is guess that it was about misgendering because that's all that I can figure. And because immediately after I was banned, you know, literally within the hour after I was banned, there was suddenly this report um, published at Pink News, which is like a kind of queer LGBT news site or whatever, um, saying, you know, Twitter has instilled this new rule against misgendering and dead naming. And I was like, oh, this is really funny timing. That um, came immediately after? Yes. 
Yeah, it was it, really very strange. Literally within the hour. And this was, I was banned at like yeah, 11 p.m. on a Friday night. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost certainly internal politics, it seems. Because, you know, you're a totally rational human being and obviously um, there's just no humanity on the other end of the conversation. You can't even talk to a human at Twitter or Facebook or Google. It's, it's very, you know, you sort of have to like know somebody. I mean, you know, we've experienced it. We got, um, we got banned from Google play randomly for like six months, our app. Um, and it was because of like a semi explicit, like image of like a girl in like a bikini and it had a blur over it. And by the way, Twitter allows porn full on porn. Yes. Like what? How do you allow that? But not, you know, it's, it it makes no sense. And so eventually like the way that we got reinstated on Google play, I just sent them an email after I saw the, the Dorsey podcast on Rogan. And I was like, how are you banning us for this? Like half naked photo that is underneath an explicit blur, but Twitter allows full out porn. What? Like, how is that reasonable that like ban them and two days later we're back. So it's totally these subjective decisions and it's a total mess. You know, same thing happened on Facebook. We were anytime people would like paste a minds.com link in the messenger, it would just be like, you can't share this link. It's like, you know, uh, uh, unsafe or something. And then, and you would have to do this like captcha and then through like a friend of a friend, we, who worked there, we, you know, we're like, are you joking? Like how? And we got it reversed, but it's just these, you ha- it's like, you have to know someone like in the network or you have to appeal it to some moderator who happens by chance to think you're right and, and let you back on. It's, it's not an actual fair system. So that that's just totally unacceptable. And it's, it's offensive to particularly like people in other countries where, you know, free speech is, it would be like cherished, like they they would be um, so they would feel so lucky to have the, the freedoms that we have in, in the U S or, you know, and to see the private companies basically censoring more than the government is like, that is unbelievable. I mean, you know, because in Thailand, for instance, we got like this huge wave of like half a million Thai citizens who were pissed off at Twitter for like spying on them and, and censoring some of their activists. So they all came to minds and they were, you know, and their government is literally like imprisoning people for, criticizing the government so it's it's just they they look at people in the u.s calling for social media censorship over something like slightly offensive or even that's not offensive at all and they're just like how like you're so entitled yeah exactly and i mean and it also is just enormously depressing in terms of the fact that you know 
privileged people, I don't like to, you know, use this privileged banner, but, you know, privileged people living in the West and people who do have these rights and freedoms that other people don't have access to or supposedly have these rights and freedoms that other people in other countries don't have access to and they're living under these really repressive regimes, these dictatorships, totalitarian regimes, and that these, these progressive free people in the West are going along um, with this kind of censorship or even advocating it in many cases and arguing that, you know, it is right to protect people protect people from dangerous ideas or unsafe links or, you know, information deemed to be harmful by a corporation, you know, never mind by a government. I mean, in Canada, we are facing government censorship in a way that, you know, our our Canadian liberal government is trying to push through bills around online hate. Um, and trying to subject social media companies to regulation via the CRTC, which regulates, you know, media content, essentially. But, you know, this is going to impact individual users because it will pressure social media companies to take down content that the government deems unacceptable. Right. You know, it's going to be the liberal government that dictates what constitutes hate speech or what what what's dangerous content, essentially. Um but yeah, I mean, it's n- it's not just that these companies are doing this and that the government is doing it. It's that people don't really seem to value their own freedom of speech, their own freedom of, of expression, their own rights. And it is offensive, like you say, to these other people living in countries like Thailand. Right. And so you were, you, you came to the Minds IRL event in, in Philly and you remember Daryl Davis spoke who was, um, you know, he's a a black man who de-radicalized hundreds of members of the KKK. Mm -hmm. Now, how did he do that? He didn't ban them or refuse to talk to them. He befriended them and, you know, was human with them. And over a period of time, you know, better ideas won. But that's because he listened to them. And, you know, we're about to release a, a paper on this and and Daryl actually joined our team as an advisor to help us with this, where this is what's sick, sickening to me about what big tech is, is doing. They know that censorship is causing more radicalization and violence because there are peer reviewed studies. There's dozens of peer reviewed studies that prove censorship causes people to go insane because it, it, it reinforces their radical beliefs and it caused them to then go to some other, you know, darker part of the internet and, you know, with their little group of, you know, more uh, radical people and, you know, cause they can't be exposed to all the people on the other platforms. So they're going to go into their little world. And um, there, I mean, there have been direct correlations of, of censorship and, and violence. So, you know, while, while big tech is saying, oh, we're trying to keep the world safe, they're actually making the world more dangerous. They're causing all the political polarization. They're causing the chaos and the tribalism. Um, and so I think that over time, what we're trying to do is prove empirically that through a free speech policy, we can actually result in a higher rate of de-radicalization 
than big tech. So, and it's going to take time to, to show that, but you can't do, and a lot of people who are not even radical, obviously at all are getting banned. So this isn't just like, cause there are actual radical people getting banned. And then there's all this collateral damage um, that that's occurring because the AI is stupid and there's random subjective bans because of activist employees and, and all that kind of stuff. But you know, th- there, there is radicalization that can occur on social media in a bad way. And there are bad people on the internet, obviously. So it's like, well, how do we actually deal with that on the internet and what actually works? Well, guess what? Daryl knows what works because he has done it. I guarantee, guess what? No one at Twitter, Facebook, or Google has ever gotten a KKK member to leave the KKK because they are terrified of talking to anybody who thinks anything differently than they do. So yeah, it's, I think the data will actually prove that freeze. And that's why the, you like the first amendment is, I mean, it's battle tested for centuries. It, it makes sense. It's amazing to me how opposed to conversation people are. Um, partly because I really enjoy having conversations. So I don't relate to people who don't want to have conversations and don't want to learn and don't want to try to understand because I, you know, I feel like it's really important for us to understand understand each other for a variety of reasons, you know, to find solutions um, for empathy, for humanization, for things like that. Um, but, it, you know, I, I like learning new things, so I enjoy being exposed to new ideas and, and challenging myself. And it seems like uh, much of the, the progressive Western world um, – you know, you know, really feels the opposite way. And of course, these social media companies are, to me, anti-honest conversation, anti-open, honest, authentic conversation. They seem invested in, in shutting these things down. Do you think the big tech thinks that what they're doing is helpful? You know, do they think that they're actually um, intervening in or, you know, preventing radicalization or extremism or violence or abuse in, in, in enacting these policies? I think that they are looking at limited data sets, which trick them into thinking that what they're doing is working. So one really important example is there was a study done on Reddit analyzing um, their censorship tactics and they analyzed like hundreds of millions of of posts and the study shows that yes on reddit you can cause there to be less hate speech okay so a bunch of media took that study and they said like vice uh, obviously they said, hey, guess what? The, sen- the, the, the Reddit uh, censorship study showed that it, censorship works. And that was literally Vice's headline. If you actually read the study, which I did and uh, other researchers have, have done, it says that those users went to other darker areas of the internet and likely got further radicalized. So it's like, okay, 
are you really proud of metastasizing the problem? Like you literally just push the problem onto somebody else. That's so irresponsible. It's, it's, it's deeply irresponsible for the most powerful companies to be pawning this off on, on platforms, honestly, like us with less resources to handle it. And we're willing to, to deal with it. And, you know, honestly, 99% of the content on minds is, is great. Awesome. You know, musicians, artists, journalists, all that kind of stuff, but sure. Yeah. Like we do get the, some of the, um, you know, actual intense users who are from who get banned and we're willing to give them a place to communicate as long as they're not posting illegal content or, you know, making like actual like threats, specific, like violent threats. We're we're willing to, because we know that the data shows that if we ban them, it's going to get worse. And that over time, if they're exposed to more ideas, they could potentially change. So, um, and, and now there's all these studies coming out showing that what we're saying is true and, and we're doing studies ourselves. And so th- that's where I want to focus because I think that you can debate all day about, um, you know, what your side thinks is right. But at the end of the day, evidence is evidence. And I think that we need to take this to more of a, a, a data, you know, empirically driven place. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I wonder, do you think, I mean, do you think any internet censorship is good? Are there things, is there content that should be banned from social media platforms, for example? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we ban a lot of content. We ban uh, malicious spam. Um, There's all kinds of nasty bots. There's um, obviously like extreme harassment and violent threats are illegal. So that needs to be banned. Additionally, you know, we've taken certain stances like with um, animated child uh, sexualization. We do not allow that. And that, that is ambiguously illegal in the U S you know, obviously child porn is illegal, Um, but animate there's, there's this whole kind of, nasty internet realm of of animated versions of that which is not real but you know so it does fall under some some state obscenity laws and we've just said look other states might not but we're just no we're we're, we're not going there in terms of that because it's it's ambiguous but you know typically we're i don't feel we're in a better position to create a speech policy than the first amendment. I, I think that that's insanely arrogant to, to think that a few of your corporate lawyers can somehow draft something that is better for society than, than, you know, the constitution. So, you know, being a neutral intermediary, I think is really important. And so, so sort of to move in, quickly to like what to do about it. Like people talk, Oh, section 230, section 230, section 230 gives plat both. It gives platforms and publishers who have comment sections immunity over user generated content. Um, So that, you know, if people post illegal stuff that you're not, that the platform or publisher in the comment section is not liable. 
there's a lot of misunderstanding about what 230 means. 230 doesn't say that a platform can't moderate. A platforms can moderate, and I think that they should be able to moderate. Um, if you're a phishing social network, why would you have to allow, you know, if that's which the site that you're trying to make, like if and someone wants to post about, you know, hockey, like why it's your site. Like you don't need to allow the world to 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 do that. Now, what Clarence Thomas recently said, uh, Supreme Court Justice, is that and this is I agree with this. Once a platform reaches a certain size, it should be considered a common carrier, which means that they then cannot play politics and that they have to abide by the First Amendment. That makes so like Twitter, all, Facebook, all the biggest platforms in the world. Like once you reach a certain size, no, nope, sorry, you got to treat everybody the same. And we're sort of taking that stance early. Like we're basically using the common carrier approach as a much smaller platform. Like we got like 5 million users, but you know, we think that that is the scalable platform that the world needs. So we're going to do it sooner. But, you know, again, section 230 is not what needs to be used to hold the tech companies accountable because section 230 actually protects companies like us from users posting illegal, illegal stuff. It doesn't say that like a public, a platform versus publisher in 230, even though everybody seems to think that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would tend to agree with you because I don't, I don't think it makes sense to be holding platforms for everything that their users post. I mean, then we would be, then you know, I would be responsible for hosting a website where um, comments deemed hate speech. Exactly. You know, I would. It, it shouldn't be my responsibility. What other people say, I can't control that. I don't want to control that. I mean, it's funny because I like I lost my case against Twitter because of two two thirty, which is sort of confusing because right. you know, on one hand, it protects them from being accountable for what I say, so that, you know, tech, you know, theoretically, they shouldn't ban me then because it has nothing to do with them. You know, it's that's what I say. It doesn't mean that they're signing on to what I say. But then they're also saying, you know, we have the freedom to to ban whoever we want and to decide who publishes what on our platform. So they're sort of using it both ways. Um, Yeah, that is exactly the point that we need to focus on. So some people would say 230 needs to be reformed to sort of be more like a common carrier, you know, to include sort of like common carrier type language, forcing platforms to be neutral. But I think that that, I don't know if that necessarily makes sense because smaller sites I don't necessarily think should have to allow everything. I mean, but, but in your case, like, and I don't think that you, you would even necessarily advocate that people, small networks can't, you know, moderate how they want to moderate, but like Twitter is a different situation. It's, it is the public square and same with Facebook and YouTube and all of them. So, you know, I'm sort of uh, on the Clarence Thomas wave. I think that that makes more sense than changing 230 um, because even though, you know, you were impacted by 230, it's like, where are we going to, if we're going to have regulation, it needs to be done right. That doesn't take away smaller platforms speech to be able to moderate how they want it to be moderated. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's really silly and dishonest at this point for companies like Facebook and Twitter to pretend as though, you know, well, we're we're a private company, we can do what we want, because yeah. it's very obvious that they have such a massive impact on people's lives and, you know, the news and on politics. Like, you know, they have a huge, these, these companies have had a major impact on elections, obviously. Um, they're impacting what people believe science is and, you know, trust the science is, is supposedly, you know, a neutral and non-political mantra that uh, Twitter and Facebook and YouTube is now using to only, you know, prop up certain certain science <laughs> to Absolutely. censor other science. Democracy is so deep. I mean, they say that they're censoring certain content to protect elections, but yet they are engineering elections more than anybody. So they're acting like some post from somebody who's talking about election fraud is worse than banning uh, the president or banning or banning politicians or, 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 it's um yeah it's it's really there, there's a lot of uh, of lack of self awareness <laughs> and and like COVID I mean same with COVID and all the censorship happening there it's just it's not it's it's sort of assuming that people just don't have the ability to see something that they disagree with at all yeah and I mean it's ironic because they present this kind of censorship um, as protecting people, as keeping people safe, you know, protecting people from harassment, um, from uh, racism, things like that, which would probably, you know, they would probably be argued, they would probably argue that that is helping people in terms of their mental health. I'm sure lots of people would defend it and say things like, you know, these things can lead to suicide, so we have to stop it. Um, these things can lead to real-world violence and harm, so we have to stop it. And at the same time, I know that you've talked about this before, these these apps and these platforms actually, just in the way that they function, are really harmful to people's mental health. Yeah, yeah. Basically, all, yeah, all the studies around uh, dopamine and with all the likes and, you know, teenagers getting depressed because they're not, you know, one's getting more likes than the other or, or the, I mean, that stuff is, is really difficult and it is true. And, and so, so there are true elements of that I mean, there are people who could see something mean on social media and get super depressed. And so the question is, okay, how, how do you handle that? Um, do you, I think providing mental health resources for people, you know, even if you, even if you flag content with a certain word that, you know, maybe you would provide some sort of, uh, resource to a, a mental health hotline or something proactive that isn't making that because when you ban that bully that bully what did you just do to their life um you know you you have to think about the mental health impact on the supposedly toxic people because that that's actually it, it's sort of getting into different theories around rehabilitation in general. 
but I, I so I, there's definitely certain truth to some of their arguments around um, around radicalization, around uh, mental health, and but but I think that it's just missing half of the equation, and it's irresponsibly uh, pushing those people into much darker places. So I think that there's a balance where you can, um, you can bring in proactive tools without banning the conversation and, and harming those that you think are, you know, need to be banned. It's just, it's, it's not okay to, to be, to be forgetting about the mental health impact of, I mean, those are the people that we honestly need to focus on the most. And that's what Daryl would say is that, that that community, whatever you do with them, if you, I, I don't know exactly what the solution is, but there, there has to be a path to to redemption for those types of people. Otherwise, the world is just not going to a good place. Sure. And I mean, it's not, it's just not so obvious as I think a lot of people pretend it is what's harmful in terms of what happens on social media, what people say on social media, how people engage on on social media. I mean, I don't think, I don't feel that I've ever been super upset or harmed by like some misogynist telling me off. I think that probably what's been more harmful to my mental health is like spending too much time on social media. And to be honest, like probably just engaging engaging often with people who, you know, at one point I would have considered on my side, you know, I don't like engaging in social media arguments. I don't find it fun. I don't find it productive. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's an energy suck. I feel drained and bad when I do engage after, you know, you've spent hours online and you're like, I don't feel good. I don't feel like we got anywhere. There's no point to that. And so I try to not do it. I just try to not engage in that kind of stuff. Um, and I just think it's, I think it's a little bit kind of silly and like misguided when people act like the only harm or problem with social media is people threatening violence, even people saying mean right. things, people even saying racist things. People see like I don't really care if somebody says something sexist to me on social media. It doesn't bother me. Like yeah, why would it? Random person. I mean, I would I would imagine that getting permanently banned from Twitter probably affected your mental health <laughs> more than some random comment trolls. Totally. It was crazy stressful. I, when I got banned, I cried. I was yeah. really upset. I was really stressed okay, out. So I was really here. worried. I was like, how am I going to do my work? Like, how am I going to make a living? Like, this is a big deal. That's the same for every single person who gets banned. And you know, that's, it's millions of people who are getting banned. If this, these aren't small numbers. So, and, and, and to what you're saying as well about, you know, how, what actually causes depression, it's deeper. It is us just being addicted to our phones. It's just the, like the fact that you can't stand in the grocery store line without picking up your phone. That's not any specific app's fault. That's our own faults. So, so, you know, there's, I think education that we all need, like, I'm guilty of it. I'm addicted. Are you kidding me? Like, I need to like lock my phone, like in my car and like go up to my room and like, keep it, keep it away from me and like, not, or like go out and not bring it in order to, 
in order to not touch it because I think people are so addicted partially because these are like survival mechanisms. These are, these are, you know, your chance at, at success, at a livelihood, at, at work, at, at making money, at connecting with people. Like this is the modern tool for, for, you know, for making it. And, you know, people in other countries, like, you know, this is access to information. It's an education. There's so much good about it. And there's reason that we're addicted. It's not like just this evil thing. It's very nuanced. And so, and you also have in terms of like censorship and language, like if I say, I hate you on a comment, I might be being sarcastic and mean that I love you. I mean, you don't know what hate means. Hate it, words are just um, tools for, you know, there can be sarcasm. There can be, they can mean the opposite. It could be slang. You will never ban every bad word because if you ban one word, then, and this is known to be what's happening in extremist communities, they just change the word. It's a meme. You cannot ban memes. It's like all encoded crazy language that is you're, you're never going to get to the end of it. So um, yeah, just like automatically banning someone with some AI because there's a certain word that was said on their post. Like that is the laziest attempt at running a, a platform for discourse that I can even think of. I, I it, it's just, it's just lazy. Yeah, it's lazy and doesn't make any sense. And like you say, it decontextualizes every conversation. Um, I I mean, what do you think is the best way to combat this? Do you think it's the answer is platforms like Minds? I mean, is is it possible even to hold companies like Twitter accountable? And how would we do that? I mean, Trump's trying to sue them right now. I, I I don't know what you think. I don't know if you think that'll have any success or any impact. I think that I'm very curious to see how it plays out. And I, I think that a class action suit for, I mean, th that's the type of predecessor to maybe some sort of common carrier solution. I don't know. I, I certainly think that it needs to happen. So I think that the suit itself is totally reasonable of course he was going to fight back and, you know, is going to bring, I, I don't know. Are you going to get involved with it? It's no, I mean, I think, I think it's specific to American oh, it's users. American. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I'm not, I'm actually not sure how that, how the, I mean, I actually am an American citizen oh, to be honest, but oh, I've been obviously I'm a Canadian citizen, citizen as well. I'm dual, okay. but I lived in Canada and when I was banned, I was in Canada. So I'm not sure if I would be eligible to, to participate. Yeah. I think that something needs to happen and it's a, it's a combination. I mean, I, it's a combination of, of new platforms and I absolutely do think that new networks will continue to grow that treat creators better. Um, and that's why we're seeing all of the creator platforms grow really fast. That's why we're growing that is going to keep happening. And, you know, it is possible for major viral events to happen so that, you know, maybe we go order of magnitude, maybe we, it, other, it, it will happen to others. So yes, alternatives, that's one part. Yes. You know, 
pushing the major platforms to to change through you know their own decision and you know potentially regulation i do think you need to be careful about bad regulation um, and you need to be really smart a lot of times lawmakers don't understand anything about social media and technology and like one thing that you never hear anyone talking about is okay you okay you regulate facebook or or all all of them are you finding out what the algorithms do who's i mean if you or if you say you break up facebook like which would be a, t- a sort of traditional pathway to antitrust oh they're too big they're too powerful so you need to break them up into smaller companies um that's i don't think that is going to do anything and that that that's not a good idea because then you're still not getting access to the algorithms algorithms to see what the bias and shadow banning is so no one there's still no accountability on what is actually happening behind the scenes you're just sort of it's like you know the cutting one arm off of a multi-headed monster i mean it's just going to grow back into a new one i i i really don't think that that makes sense. So it needs to be smarter. It needs to be something around common carrier provisions where if they reach like X number of users, then they have to be, you know, treat everybody equally. That seems reasonable. And honestly, I feel like that would make it easier for them to what you were saying in the beginning. Like, why do they want to be dealing with all of this censorship? Like it limits the, their potential customers. So, I mean, if they could just say, hey, it's the law that we have to allow everybody, guess what? Now they don't have to worry about all this drama. No, and then they don't they don't really have to be accountable for what they do, which apparently is what they want, because nobody can say, Oh, you're not being fair, this is a political decision, this is ideological, you know, you're you're that you're banning me because you hate conservatives or whatever. All they would have to do is say, Sorry, all we're doing is we're we're saying illegal content isn't allowed on our platform. Um, we're just following the law it has nothing to do with us. It seems way simpler. I would have to imagine that there are forces within all of the companies that are advocating for that kind of position. I don't think that it is a hundred percent monoculture where there's no, there's no debates happening inside the companies. I read one long article about, about wars happening within Twitter about this very issue. So it's not as if nobody in the, in these companies is fighting for that. Um, and yeah, so th- that is that that's totally rational. And I think that that's where where we're moving. And the market is going to build new options. And that's going to put pressure on Facebook and Twitter and Google. And ad- additionally, like something like misinformation. You know, if someone makes a mistake, or is wrong about something, does that mean they should be banned? I mean, you know, also there's intentional misinformation, even if it is propaganda. I mean, propaganda is like the nature of media. So how are you really going to ban that? What we're working on is more of a like community powered sort of context tool so that, you know, on Facebook and Twitter, they're like, oh, this has been fact checked. This is false. Three think tanks that we hired say that this is false. Well, that doesn't help me at all. I don't know who those think tanks are. Why do I trust what they're saying about 
any issue, whether it's COVID or elections or, you know, maybe I agree that with them sometimes, but that's not how fact checking should actually work. The whole community, including all of the thousands of experts and PhDs that are on these companies, I mean, on, on these apps, they should be able to, to help decide. And so you can see on both, say, a COVID medicine post. All of the arguments on both sides of the debate should be visible to the user who is looking at like that. Say there's a little fact check button. Okay, show me the whole debate. Show me both arguments. Show me who is supporting the arguments on both sides of the issue. And I'm going to make the decision for myself. Don't tell me what's true. Help me see what the experts on both sides are saying and, and, sh- and, and do that for me on every topic. I, you would think that that would be obvious, but I, that's a, another sort of example of where I do think ideology is a part of their product development because it's sort of obvious that you can, you have this amazing crowdsource technology why aren't you using it? And you have the most brilliant people on the planet earth who use your platform. You don't think that they would want to help curate and find the most accurate information. We all want accurate information. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants bad information. (laughs) There's no one out there that's like, give me all the fake information. I want some bad science. Yeah. I mean, as much as we do like, uh, reiterating our own beliefs, I think that that only goes so far. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, you can pierce through people's desire to be in an echo chamber with, with more good information. I mean, I, I, I want to be proven wrong. And I, I think all, most of the scientists, you just would, I know that there's demand for it. And so we're building that. And as much as we'll, we'll be coming out with that later this year and, also, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Max Tegmark. Uh, he's an AI researcher at MIT, and he he was uh, he just launched this this app called Improve the News, which is sort of allows you to to filter all the trending headlines based on you know how much you know the the politics of it. You know, if you want more nuance, less nuance, more alternative media, less alternative media, more mainstream, and so. You know, these types of tools so that you can just create your own filters, decide for yourself. I mean, that just seems more honest and, you know, to to the same point from before. Why do they want to be making those decisions? And why why do they think that five think tanks and nonprofit organizations can research something better than millions of people? I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. So before I let you go, tell me, I know you have to get out of here. Um, tell me what's going on with mines currently. Um, I mean, and do you like, do you feel like you've succeeded in your, your aims? We're, we're moving in the right direction. We just uh, closed a big funding round. Um, we just raised 10 million bucks um, to help develop the platform, hire more people. And we, are growing. We just launched a whole new chat app. So if you go to minds.com slash mobile, you can get both the main mobile app and this chat app, which is totally encrypted. We don't even have access to your conversations. We don't want access to your conversations. Um, 
And so that's really important because our chat feature was, it needed love. And so we gave it love and yeah, it's, um, we're, we're moving and we're just, we're trying to help creators earn. We have all these new earning mechanisms, both for cash and crypto. And so you earn for all the posting that you do. And we got a automated YouTube uploader. So you can just sync your YouTube and your YouTube automatically uploads to mines, which actually we should follow up on because oh, that, that would make it much easier to maintain. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's all good. I try to be patient, you know, because it's, it's not, we make it harder for ourselves to grow because we also refuse to use a lot of the dirty tactics and spying that big tech used to grow. So it's like we're, we're, we already have handcuffs on with how they're censoring us from app stores and, you know, cutting us off. Like the damage that that did to us on Facebook when they were saying that it's like an unsafe site. I mean, I can't imagine the millions of people that probably saw that and were like, Ooh, why is it yeah, saying like, I mean, what's on this site? Like, on this site? Like, that's not cool that they did that. And so, so that makes it harder. We also won't spy on people, which I don't want to do, refuse to do, but that's what all of the popular tech companies do to grow. They follow you around and they target you in your browser and it's all this nasty stuff. So it's just being patient and, and standing by the principles and yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's good. So just keep trucking. Awesome. It was really great to talk to you. Um, I hope that we're able to connect again sometime soon. I'm sure we'll we'll be in touch. Um, but thank you so much for your time and, and for what you're doing. I appreciate it. Thanks, Megan. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. I rely solely on donors and individual supporters to continue to do the work I do. You can donate as little as $5 a month or more. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.